Welcome to episode 27 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. If you haven't had the chance yet, follow us at Brown Black Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're active. Be active with us. We'd love to hear from you. It's December, and for the film industry, we're headed into what is called the award season. It's a very specific time when members of organizations that both Jack and myself are members of have to look at the year's films, films that are a lot of films that have been released throughout the year, and then films that are just being released now to consider them for awards in various categories. But awards are a very specific thing for brown and black artists. Awards generally come from organizations that are not brown and black. The most covered awards, like the Tony, which are our guest today, James Monroe Eigelhart, a.k.a. the genie from Aladdin on Broadway, he's a Tony Award winner. But when you achieve these awards, are these validations, these are white-run organizations that give out the most, quote-unquote, prestigious awards. So... I guess it was a couple shows ago, Jack, we spoke with Eduardo Valero from Ballet Hispanico, and we talked about specifically that validation. I think that the gift from the Ford Foundation to the first 20 organizations, we were one of them, and we are very grateful of changing the dialogue within the funding community to focus on black and brown organizations is extremely important, timely, and necessary. And I say that because the word legitimacy is difficult because for many years we were illegitimate, (laughs) right? In so many ways. And we were like pet projects. Yeah. The backup plan. It's it's like, well, there are a few scraps of, there are a few scraps of funding Charity is what we were, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna give millions to the Eurocentric white ballet. Our work is as important. Our work is American. So that's going to be our topic today. Today's episode, are brown and black stories and art and culture, should they be judged by the dominant culture? And if we're being given a chance to tell our own stories or have our stories told, are they going to continually be judged and validated by those whose stories it is not? Clearly, I have strong feelings about this, but I know you do too, Jack. And what kicked this off, I think, was an email that you got. That's right. I also wanted to say that we're also going to be reviewing uh, the movie Soul, Pixar Soul, and also the biodoc on Billie Holiday called Billy as well. But yes, Mike, you know, one of my big issues just recently, and I should tell you the story, I ended up getting an email not too long ago, okay? And I won't name the person on the email. Suffice it to say that she's a woman and uh, she wrote an email. The headline, Kingsley Benadir, One Night in Miami. Kingsley Benadir is the actor, the black actor that plays Malcolm X in Regina King's One Night in Miami. That's coming out December 25th for Christmas Day. And as she's referring to the BFCA members, which you and I are part of that organization, it's one of the biggest film critics organizations in the in North America. She essentially says, hey, you should give Kingsley, you know, some love um, and uh 
to kind of just legitimize Kingsley's performance, we got a couple of quotes from some of your esteemed members. And when I read who the esteemed members were, Mike, let me tell you who they are. David Rooney from The Hollywood Reporter. Owen Gleiberman, Variety. Cape Herbland, IndieWire. Jonathan Romney, The Guardian. Leah Greenblatt, Entertainment Weekly. Katie Rich, Vanity Fair. What do all these critics have in common, Mike, that I'm missing? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, they're all white. <laughs> That's what it is. There's not one. So let me get this straight. A white woman, a white publicist sends out an email about a black movie done and directed by a black woman written by a black man named Kim Powers. And you give me white movie critics to legitimize this dude's performance? Where are the black critics? Where are the Latino critics? So this just kind of set me off. And I have more to say, Mike. Then all of a sudden, just to kind of make sure that I wasn't making stuff up, that this was just a one-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime moment of, of, of erroneous emails sent out, I said, you know what? I wonder what the best TV shows and the best movies of 2020 are, and who are they written by? So I did a little research, and you could do the same thing. Go ahead and Google right now, best TV shows of 2020. Here's what I found. The major publications, okay? The New York Times, written by James Ponwazic, Mike Hale, which is Asian, and Margaret Lyons. No black or Latino people. EW, Kristen Baldwin and Darren Franick. No black or brown people. Time Magazine, Judy Berman. No one else. Then I looked at the best movies. Go ahead and Google best movies of 2020. New York Times, Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott, Vanity Fair, Richard Lawson, New Yorker, Richard Brody, Esquire, Nick Shager, IndieWire, Eric Cohn, Harper's Bazaar. Finally, I found a black film critic, Candace Frederick. You and I know her. Her and I have had conversations. Her career is blowing up. The Guardian, Andrew Pulver and Benjamin Lee, and then Time Magazine, Stephanie Zacharek, which I know, white film critic good film critic and they're all great film critics but the question is why aren't black or brown film critics having a prestige outlet where they can give their brown and black movies as well i know that we would influence those movies and here's the other thing leah greenblatt i just decided to i had never heard of her up to that point so i just tweeted her out I just kind of went on her Twitter and kind of looked around and guess what I found? I found her essentially talking about black films and it started me getting to wonder where the hell were all these white film critics promoting black and brown films in the last several years? Could it be that after George Floyd and after the amount of white editor-in-chiefs leaving these publications and being replaced by black and browns that all of a sudden white film critics are like... Um, hey guys, if you want to save your career, we should probably be talking a little bit more about black. Why don't we join the gang? Why don't we join, uh, jump on board on the black, you know, uh, movies and, and say how much we love them. I know I didn't say it before, but, but we should say it now. Like we're on board guys. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, uh, I love black films. I'm going to watch more black films now than ever. Where are we? Where are we? Why aren't we in the New York Times? Ben Brantley, 
The chief Broadway critic of the New York Times is leaving at the end, I think, of this year. Will he be replaced by a black film critic? By a Latino film critic? Do we not exist? Do we not exist? And that is my beef today, Mike. That we still need to be approved and legitimized by white film critics. So the major thing to me is, so are we changing all the executives to then be judged by a white gaze again? That's an enormously legitimate question. Let me just say that, Jack Rico. Because, and you know I have a lot of feelings about this and a lot of thoughts about this. And I I came into this game about 20 years ago. And when I came in, there were very, very few black and Latino film critics at all. So you kind of got a closed loop. You've got films that are being financed, funded, written, directed, produced, starring white people, judged by white people. And then when black people were doing films, whether they were, quote unquote, black exploitation, hood films, silly black comedies or whatever they were, they were being judged by white people and white people decided whether they could or should be distributed and how and where and whether black films or Latino films will travel. And so they've been dictating all along when it comes down to the awards. Now, it's very interesting what you're proposing or putting out there. That even amongst the critics, you have to be validated by certain critics. Should these critics' opinions matter more to me? Sure, they are my esteemed colleagues, but they're not the only colleagues. And I feel at this point, and this is what really struck me about this, is every year, and you know this as well as I do, when you're in an organization like, you know, Broadcast Film Critics Association or any number of organizations, you know, you get sent all kinds of stuff. I'd say the BFCA is probably the closest or what they call it. It's been renamed the CCA, the Critics' Choice Association. It's probably the closest in terms of the Academy or the Golden Globes where we're going to get all this, not so much swag, but promotional material to tell you about the the film and, and coffee table books and this and that. And they're slathered with quotes all of those black films or all those years are always slathered with quotes from white critics. So like you said, that gaze, that gaze has always been there. But I had hoped, and this email is just the first volley of promotional material, but I had hoped that it wouldn't remain so racially tone deaf that you've got a film that is, like you said, starring nothing but people of color, produced by people of color, with an actor playing Malcolm X, okay? And you still have to get all these white critics saying, yeah, it's great. He's great. Like, how tone deaf was that publicist and that firm? But and this is the thing, Mike. She's I, not I, alone. Right. But she's talking about prestige critics. That's what this whole thing comes down to. It's still a hierarchical structure when it comes to legitimization of Hollywood actors that are black and brown. We still have to go through white people. James Monroe, in this interview that we're going to play for you in just a bit, talked about that there is no world where we're not working with white people. Absolutely. It won't exist. I get it. But is it enough to take control of our stories, but then to be criticized by a white gaze? And that's my thing, Mike. And, and, and the big question is, where are our prestige publications? There aren't any. What is, the, what is the black vanity fair? What is the Latino vanity fair? People in Espanol? Everything you're saying 
and the feelings you're having right now, that's how I, that's what made me want to co-found because uh, I co-founded two organizations, the African American Film Critics Association, and then what I'm currently co-president, co-founder of the Black Film Critics Circle. The whole idea is we have to come together as a unified voice, even if you see what Africa is doing to some extent, as a unified voice, we can at least, this is what I had hoped since Oscar's so white and everything, we could at least show that, yeah, we're here. You can't just ignore us. You can't just talk to us when there's a black or a Latino in the film that we should be acknowledged that you have to kind of level the playing field. To send out an email like that, it is literally racially tone deaf. Absolutely. I almost thought it was racist, period. R- racially tone deaf is a, is a lot nicer. Uh, <laughs> thing but Mike, the, the I mean, this is when somebody just doesn't live a, a brown and black life, man. That's just that everything around you is white. So you think that this is the way it works. So the question is, what about that actor's Kingsley's Benadir's publicist? Did she say, hey, man, listen, look, uh, by the way, they might be black. But the only way to really get you an Oscar award is going to have to be working with the white critics, man, like the CCAs, you know, they're going to have to they're mostly white. So if we can cater to white people and are these white people our allies or are they trying to trying to save their careers, their jobs? How's about this question? Should white people talk about brown and black movies the way they do or does that moment need to stop? You ask a lot of very explosive questions. I mean, on the one hand, playing devil's advocate with you, you know, we had to have abolitionists to help what was going on with slavery and help help overturn it and help change things and help. The Underground Railroad relied on people, people in a position of power have to help people who are not in a position of power get to that power. You know, whether you're a a Biden and you bring in a black woman as vice president to help open the door. The white savior syndrome that you've always been talking about in movies. It's a double like there's no way to get around it because that's the dominant culture. There's no way to get around it. It's a good question. Are you an ally or are you just saving your job? I think it's got to be a combo. On the one hand, the problem is, and this is where you took it, and this is what I think is the deepest question is, okay, yeah, it's great. Now, if your staff writer is going to start writing about black films and black TV and black issues. Then where does that leave us? Exactly. They're taking away our jobs. Like, for example, this woman, Leah Greenblatt, okay? Not even taking away our jobs. We could never have gotten there to begin with. Right, because now they are taking over the white, you know, uh, the, the the white movies and they're taking out the the black movies and they will eventually take the Latino movies. So then we'll never get our voices heard. Like this woman, Leah Greenblatt. Okay, and this is just an example of a white person talking about black. In one of her tweets, she goes, I got to spend some time with the lovely Jennifer Hudson and watch her twirl for this month's EW cover story. A bright spot of chiffon and diamonds and respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, in a very bleak year, Right. So she, a white woman, wrote about Jennifer Hudson as opposed to a black person, right? Who could have had that black job to write about her and talk about maybe deeper dimensions of her blackness that matter. Then she says, also included Forrest Whitaker, Audra McDonald, Marlon Wayans, Mary J. Blige, and a partridge in an EGOT tree, basically. What does that sound like to you, Mike? Yeah. Well, she's basking in the sun of blackness, basking in the sun of blackness. All right. Well, listen, what you're really getting at is opportunity. It's not just about being on the screen. It's being behind the camera. It's not just being on the screen and behind the camera, but it's also here's the key here. Critics to me are the original influencers. Yes, absolutely. 
a critic is someone who gives you an opinion. And let's say something here also about opinion and perspective. Opinion and perspective literally is everything. We're living in a time where if you watch the documentation of reality on one set of media, it shows you the world in one way. If you watch it in another set of media, it shows you the world in a very, very different way. Taking that same larger picture view, if it is the validation of white critics to say something is art, whether it's something like Ballet Hispanico or the performance of James Monroe Iglehart, is that what it takes? And how long does it have to be that way? Let me ask you this question, Mike, and, and, and I'm going to be as blunt with this question, and, and I am expecting a very blunt answer from you, okay? Mm. One, should white film critics review black and brown films? Do they have that right? I'm going to say yes, but there's some, a huge caveat. All right, so before you continue, here's the follow-up question. What about black film critics? If they end up getting those positions, wouldn't a white person say, well, why, wait a minute, why are you reviewing white films? So what is the comparison there? Well, okay, couple things here. When it comes down to how a film is marketed, the publicity and how it goes out to journalists like ourselves, if I'm considered a quote unquote black outlet, I'm going to get pitched certain actors, certain perspective, I'm going to get access, a certain amount of access to certain films. And often I deal only with certain publicists who are hired to deal with my segment of the media. Right. And those are called these target audience executives, departments that, hey, Warner Brothers, you have a black department for black folks well they do now they used to hire out oh and they still do they still do i remember yes. that i couldn't watch a white movie if it wasn't a hispanic department at a studio reaching out to me and say hey would you like to uh, watch this white movie i'm like why isn't that a normal thing segregation that's what it's called and they all go to the white prestigious ones because those are the only ones that matter so black and brown don't and they might get two slots like i remember them telling me hey by the way sorry we can't get you in showbiz cafe but we got univision telemundo i go wait a minute what about the 10 other slots that those other no whoa 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 my organization the 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 black film critics circle the bfcc we're in our 10th year we're celebrating our 10th anniversary now we're finally you know when we get those invites and it says oh come to the screening and click on what organization you're in mm -hmm. okay now we're on that list to get to that list took us almost 10 years just to be on the list with all those other critics organizations that are listed Bro, up there. Rotten Tomatoes. How long did it take for you to get in? Because they did, they wouldn't accept black and brown Latino film critics. It took a movement. Just like it took a movement to allow people into the academy as to vote, it took a movement. It took a movement to, to allow uh, black and brown people to get into positions of, of, of leadership that we've seen happen this year. It took a, a movement for Obama to get elected. It takes a movement for anything to change in this country and the way things are run it takes a movement it literally takes a revolution it takes unrest it takes black lives matter to wake these guys up exactly it takes an outcry we still have a long way to go so it's got to be pushed because like james says there's no way we're gonna have a world without white people All right, so the next part of our show is where we're going to review a film. And interestingly enough, 
the writer you were speaking about earlier, Kent Powers. Kemp Powers is also one of the creators behind the movie Soul. What the... What is this place? What's your name, honey? Uh, I'm Joe. I teach middle school band. Got it, go for it! Today started out as the best day of my life. Back here tonight, first show's at seven. Yes! Woohoo! You know what that's gonna say? Joe Gardner! <laughs> I did it! I got the gig! Must have been sudden for you. great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interest before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. Uh... Soul centers around middle school band teacher Joe Gardner, who's voiced by Jamie Foxx, who has always aspired to play jazz with the greats, but whose life has turned out more like that of George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, a tribute to self-practice and delayed gratification. Just when Joe appears to have a chance at the big time, one misstep removes him from this plane of existence and forces him to team up with a cynical, disembodied soul called 22, voiced by Tina Fey, who is as reluctant to join the world of the living as Gardner is desperate to get it back. Very curious as to what you thought of this movie, Jack, because I, I have mixed feelings and I want to know what your thoughts are. Well, I think it's historic. I think the fact that it's the first black protagonist in the studio Pixar's 34-year animation history, I think is something that needs to be said. Um, I remember when this happened with Coco and I spoke to some of the directors there, I said, will, will there be more diverse stories from Pixar? Will there be more diverse directors at Pixar? And they said, yes. So I guess this was one of them. Um, Powers is also the only, the only black co-writer and co-director of a Pixar film to date. So that was completely in my mind as I was watching this movie. Now, what do I think of the film overall? I think 1 to 10, I give it an 8. Do I think it's one of the best films ever made from Pixar? No. Do I think that they broke a lot of barriers? They broke a lot of ceilings here? Did, did I think that they brought in a lot of black consultants and blackified a bit Pixar that needed it, that needed some color? Um, absolutely. And hopefully this is the first attempt at making more black films that we that we've seen. I remember that 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 hair movie. Yes, I do. That one at the Oscars. So so that's what we need to see more. It's not nothing that's revolutionary like with Soul. It should be something normal. And I think we're going to be seeing more of these experiences like more Cocos, more Souls. So for that, the movie is worthy of watching. Um, I love jazz, Mike. I love always questioning what the meaning of life is. And if you had to really boil this down to one line in the movie, the line is, I'm going to live life every minute of it. 
I had a similar feeling watching the film. I think that Pixar has raised the bar for animation and writing and film. You know, I happened to watch another Disney production that was, let's just say, subpar compared to this film. Uh, and, you know, if you know the history of this, this was an idea that they had when they decided to make the protagonist black. Who used That's, to be white. It was initially was white. white. It was initially white. Initially, and again, 30 plus years in, they're still writing these stories where three quarters of the film, he's just a disembodied ghost. Mm -hmm. But they still had to, or at least half the film, it still originally was being planned around a white person. Now, this comes back to part of what we're saying, you know, like anything else, people write from what they know. I mean, if you're white, you're not going to necessarily write about a black man. I respect that they brought in a black person to to help give it soul, as it were. And, <laughs> and, and, and I respect that, that Kemp, his contributions were so great that they decided to give him a co-director. Oh, brother, he had a six, uh, I think a six or 12 week contract that they extended yes. it for a year yes. and a half where he started getting involved in the casting and the co-directors. Exactly. And, exactly. and they, they saw that they needed it. And it was interesting because even Pete Doctor, the director of Soul, white director, um, he, one of the things that, that they were lost on is well, what is the actual message of the film? And right. it wasn't until they saw this uh, Herbie Hancock video, masterclass video, where mm -hmm. he was talking about Miles Davis that they found sort of their uh, raison d'etre. Uh, yes, their spark. And that was <laughs> the philosophy of not judging what you're given, but simply turning whatever it is into something of value. To understand the life of another, of another, even, you know, Pete Doctor's an artist, so is Herbie Hancock, but to really understand the life of another, you, you kind of have to walk in their shoes. Exactly. And I will just touch into the Billy Holiday documentary, the, the movie Billy by James Erskine. It chronicles her life. And I'll give a more thorough review, but w what's interesting about that is understanding where someone's art springs from gives you an understanding of them and understanding where an art form came from. You can't make a movie that deals with jazz and not involve black people. Okay. Even if you wanted to make your movie about a white person who loves jazz, you owe it to yourself to do the research, to understand, okay, what is this art? How was it transformative to the people and culture it came from? What does it mean? And I think that that's very important. And I think that that, I, 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 while I respect that they did that, but, you know, for me, and I'm not being critical here, but Pete Docter was also, at the same time he was directing this, he had to take over Pixar because John Lasseter being, let's just say, ousted. For sexual harassment. Right. Here's the thing. They had to open the door because of this story they had. And once they opened the door, they realized what value he was to the project. They realized they had to do this. If they had not, I'm wondering how long would that door have stayed closed? Well, now that we're speaking of uh, Billy, Mike, why don't we review the film? The world's greatest jazz vocalist, Miss Billy Holiday. Hey there, baby, make up your mind Cause I've been waiting such a long, long time Everybody that professed to know her, they knew nothing about her. Hey, hey, hey. 
be a pretty interesting story. It had a wildlife. No innovator was like her, nobody. Beautiful soul that she could only express it by singing. Encore and encore. Without even trying, she was the great lady of all time. Billy, why so many jazz greats seem to die so early? The only way I can answer that question is... We try to live 100 days in one day. Billy is a documentary by James Erskine, and it's... Wait, is this guy a white director, too? Of course. Come oh, on. my God. There it is. But that that's not even the, the most the white part. He's, he's a white director, but here's what's most interesting. It's, it's, like I said, it's rich and nuanced, but it's based on these audio recordings that a white author, Linda Lipnack-Quill did for a do- uh, she was going to write a biography on Billie Holiday. Now this is a fairly affluent white woman who just felt something in Billie Holiday's music. She never met her, but she interviewed like everybody, everybody who knew her and she did this like 20 years after Billie had died. And throughout the course of the uh documentary you find out a little bit about linda's life as well and you and you begin to see some of the connection they may have had why she was so connected to billy holiday because billy holiday had an enormously uh tragic life she she had all i don't even want to you just need to see the documentary you'll never listen to her music again uh and i think jack you know a lot about you mean in the same way again yeah yeah, yeah. You, because we see, we, we hear Billie Holiday, uh, the first time you listen to Billie Holiday, I mean, I don't know how many people have tried to copy her same exact phrasing. I mean, you could go back from Nora Jones, from Amy Winehouse. I mean, there's just so many of them, but there's this deep, sad tone to the way she sings music. And a lot of people see it as romantic, but it's not romantic. It's tragic. Enormously tragic, but it's so soulful and so deep and so powerful. It touches you. You hear her stylings are, it, it's just, it's a style that, that it is what the blues are. So I, I, the film is, like I said, a mixture of these recordings that Linda did to make this biography or to write this biography, but she, and the film will document how, but she died mysteriously without finishing it. And when you see the documentary, you see that though it was ruled as a suicide, it might not have been. And it might largely been because she was trying to put this documentary. Some of the things that happened to Billie Holiday and some of the people, not only her inner demons, but she she married a few demons as well. And let me just say, her music reflects her life. This strange fruit is such a powerful, powerful song. If you've never heard it, you owe it to yourself to hear. Uh, but she was asked in the documentary, they asked her, what is, you know, of all her songs, what does she feel is the most personal? And she said, it's Don't Explain, because she wrote that too. Billie Holiday did not just sing other people's songs. She wrote some of her songs too, some of her biggest hits. She wrote the lyrics and the music. Before we go to James, though, I wanted to ask you, you saw the Broadway production. What was that like? Oh, yeah, Mike. Um, My wife and I went to go see Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill when it came out in uh, Broadway a few years ago that Audra McDonald played the role of Billie Holiday. I had never, ever in my life ever thought that anyone could capture the vocal essence of Billie Holiday, ever. And Audra McDonald did it. 
I believe it wow. might be on HBO Max. If you get a chance, check it out if you have it. If not, watch a couple of trailers. She was Billie Holiday. She was Billie Holiday, man. And the whole Broadway show was so cool because Emerson's Bar and Grill, from what I understand, was in Philadelphia. I'm not sure if it if it exists there uh, any longer, but the idea was that when you walk into the venue, you're actually walking into Emerson's Bar and Grill. And as you're walking in, there's a piano playing, you know, there's, it's like there's, there's action going on. And you happen to be the people that paid that night back in the 60s to walk in. So that's your role in the show. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes out and says, ladies and gentlemen, Lady Day, Billie Holiday. And Audra McDowell comes in and we start listening to her sing. And there's stories that are told in between that talk about her tragic life and what these songs mean. And so we go through moments of elation and then through moments of deep sadness and she's getting drunk on the stage and you start to notice the unraveling of what is this musical icon of the jazz era and um it's painful man it was a it was a painful story uh but 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 told through song and and i thought that it's it was one of the best musicals i had seen up to that point number one because it's black number one because it's billy holiday but also because of her life and what that meant and how Audra and the show truly captured that essence. Mama may have Papa may have But God bless the child Let's got his own Let's got his own Well, Jack, last thing before we go to James, uh, two pieces of news hit today. One that, you know, one we've already talked about, that Quibi is officially dead. But more importantly, Warner Brothers announcement. Bro! Yes, crazy news coming out of Warner Brothers that they're going to be sending 17 of their films, including The Matrix 4, Suicide Squad, and Dune, probably their biggest tentpole to date. They're sending it to HBO Max. Now, this is something... That a few weeks, we had an inkling of what could happen with Wonder Woman coming out December 25th on HBO Max and theaters. And theaters seemed to be fine with it. I thought they were going to collapse of the news. But because the vaccine is coming out, stocks are going up. And I think they finally, I think theaters finally caved in and said, look, this idea that we're going to have movie studios just come to us ignore the streamers, ignore the numbers that they're making, and give us give us a six-month window, that's not going to happen. If you don't play with the studios who are the creators of the content that you only distribute, then, then they're not going to survive. And I think they caved in, said yes, and now we have a historic moment in the media business, an actual real-time moment of the shifting from movie theaters to home theater viewing essentially on a simultaneous level so they these windows that we talked about six months three months three weeks gone gone it's now day to day mike and i told this to aubrey plaza on the highly relevant when i mentioned it to her and she's like oh no you know uh, i i don't want to 
talk about the demise of theaters just yet, she said. And I go, it's here. Theaters are just going to be venues for big time movies because if you can watch Wonder Woman at home or watch it in the theater, somebody's like, hey, let's go watch it. But if you got four kids for 20 bucks or free at that moment and you're poor and you're not making money and you're unemployed, brother, you're going to be picking home all day over the theaters. First of all, I think the industry has been heading here for a while. I think it cannibalized itself to an extent as the windows for digital and theatrical release got smaller and smaller and smaller. They were cannibalizing the audience. Everybody started to know you didn't really have to wait. And if you waited long enough, you ended up missing it and then you have to catch it at home. So I think that that was already happening. The pandemic clearly accelerated that. I think we were headed there maybe in two to four years, maybe. I don't know if it would have been including block blockbusters like this, but I think this is inevitable. But I also think what has happened here is we're going to be splitting the audience. There will be the movie-going audience. I mean, picture a generation that almost never went to the movies because everything was always on. Like the kids growing up, being born that are four or five years old now, every big movie you see going for the rest of your life was at home at the same time. So going to the movies, you may not even experience that you're in college and you go, wow, this is what my parents talked about. So, hey, if you can't... It's going to be seen as a retro nostalgic look for these young kids today. Retro nostalgic, but also, like you said, for big movies. You know, one of the things we talked about on the show here is how the movie going experience, theaters are going to have to raise prices. And I also think... This is what I really want to do, because this just broke. There's a lot of details we don't know yet, but they can't possibly be taking 85% of the box office from the movie theaters, because they're already getting that money when it's on digital now, if they own the platform. So they have to have negotiated a new deal with movie theaters. I would think the split has got to be a lot better to make it worth the theater owner's while. Well, here's what Ann Sarnoff, the chair and the CEO of Warner Media Studios, who came from BBC, here's what she said. We're living in an unprecedented time which calls for creative solutions, including this new initiative for the Warner Brothers Picture Group. No one wants films back on the big screen more than we do. We know new content is the lifeblood of theatrical exhibition, but we have to balance this with the reality that most theaters in the U.S. will likely operate at reduced capacity throughout 2021. With this unique one-year plan, we can support our partners in exhibition with a steady pipeline of world-class films, while also giving moviegoers who may not have access to theaters because of the pandemic or aren't quite ready to go back to the movies the chance to see our amazing 2021 films. We see it as a win-win for film lovers and exhibitors, and we're extremely grateful to our filmmaking partners for working with us on this innovative response to these circumstances. Is that corporate bullshit, Mike? Or is that real? Uh, You know, it's well put. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting time. I mean, I think that all of that boils down to saying if we don't keep the money flowing, more people are going to lose their jobs. So at the end of the day, they've got movies, they've got content, they've got content in the can. They're seeing that there is money to be made. They're seeing that there is enough people who have subscribed. And they also know that you may not get everybody when you release Mulan, but then you release Spider-Man and then you release Black Panther 2. Tenant is now coming to, to digital, and, and that was the one they thought that was going to bring everybody back to the theaters. Come on, risk your life, see Tenant. But it didn't happen. And New York and L.A. are still not open for movie theaters. And Broadway is still not open. So this was inevitable. Yeah, and I think other movie studios are going to follow suit. So, my friend, I ask you this. Who benefits 
of the day-to-day theatrical release of these movies by the studios? It's beneficial for both. I think it's beneficial for the audience that wants to see it and those who can't afford to spend all that money, who have kids, who whatever, really, I want to see Wonder Woman, but I, I got three kids and, and a, a full-time job. Right, but is it going to be like like 50-50, you know, of the movie going on? Because we know we're, the, the, the spectrum is going to break. I think it's- I don't think so. Yes. I think it's going to be 70-30, man. Ooh, okay. I think there's going to be more people at home. Dude, America's unemployed, man. Right now, yes, yes. There are no jobs. You can't just go get a job. Like, everybody's at home, and some of these trials are for free. So I think a lot of people are going to be staying at home, not having to pay $100 to take out their kids. Go to the park. There's still a pandemic. Come back. Watch the movie at home. Dude, we did a whole segment on this, you know, home theaters. Like, that's what people have done. It's coming. We should go back and revisit all these people and say so. <laughs> now are you going to get that home theater? <laughs> well, Mike, I've been very excited to talk to James Monroe Iglehart. If you ever went to the Broadway show Aladdin from Disney in Times Square, at the Amsterdam Theater, you saw one of the greatest performances of the modern era in Broadway by James Monroe Iglehart. Now, we all know the original cartoon of Aladdin and how amazing Robin Williams did that. But what I love about what Disney was trying to do is they were trying to, to not typecast the genie. They decided to go in a different way, and they stunt casted, you could say, and they brought in James Monroe Iglehart. What he did with the Robin Williams character of Genie is something that people still talk about today. And clearly, when I walked it out, when I walked out of that theater, I said, "That was the best thing I've seen all year." Period. In terms of performances, and he eventually, everybody agreed, and eventually won the Tony Award. So we had a chance to talk to him, who has a brand new show about Christmas and miniatures called Big Little Christmas that's on HGTV. And James Monroe is here with us now. Well, Alibaba had devoted thief shares. I'd have had a thousand tapes. We mastered you in luck because of your sleep. You got a brand of magic never fails. You got some power in your corner now. Some heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch, pizzazz, yeah, and how. See, all you gotta do is rub that lamp, and I'll say, Mr. Aladdin, sir, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. Now, 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 have some of column Games! James Monroe, look at you. What's happening, man? How you guys doing? How's it going, my man? Going pretty well, you know, I'm doing my best. Well, James, uh... Thank you for being on the Brown and Black podcast. I think Please. you can figure out who's the brown guy and who's the black guy. Who's the Latina totally. guy? Who's the black totally. guy? Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. <makes sense. laughs> but the problem is with the way my family is, everybody's brown, so I don't know who's who, and everybody speaks Spanish or not Spanish, so we just go, who is that? Family, cousin, don't know. You, they just hear. Okay. All right, so you know what? We should probably start there, James. Uh, right ladies there. and gentlemen. James Monroe Iglehard, uh, one of the most talented people I've had the privilege of witnessing uh, on the stage in Aladdin. Uh, I told Darren Alsavari, I said, dude, 
of course we're going to talk to James because <laughs> James deserves every ounce of that Tony winning statue that he has. I mean, what you did there changed my mind of what a performer can do on stage on Broadway, man. So, Oh my gosh. Thank you very much, my brother. That means a lot. Thank you. And, 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 and I, concur. thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so wait a minute. So what is this whole Latino vibe you got going on in your family? Is there a Latino vibe going on? Oh, big time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, um, uh, my my sister-in-law, she married a Latino man. So my nieces and nephews are Latino. Uh, their relationship did not work out. So I became dad. So Papa, my... Papa. Yes, yes. So my 24-year-old daughter, who just turned 24 a couple days ago, um, she's married. I, I raised her and her sister and brother. So that's what's up with that. So yeah. So it's very, very interesting for my nephew. You know how boys are. My nephew to start doing stuff in school he ain't supposed to be doing. And I call him from New York and I said, look, if I hear one more thing, I'm going to show up to school. <laughs> so he did one more thing. I flew from New York to California. Oh, he didn't wow. know. He didn't know. So uh, he's with his friend in the back of the room, not paying attention to the teacher. And I'm in the doorway and he looks up and he just grabs his pencil and starts writing. And I was like, I don't know why you I was like, I don't know why you writing. You didn't hear a doggone thing a lady said. So all the black kids, all the black kids are totally confused. They're like, who's the black guy? He's like, that's, that's my uncle. And he was like, wait, you have a black uncle? All of a sudden his street cred went up so much. Real crazy. But, um, yeah, that's that's my family, Sergio and Helica and Clarissa. That's my family. So you know, my, every, everybody's biracial in my family. It's really crazy. And dude, that, that's beautiful that. because Thank not you. only is your family biracial, but you've been in shows that are biracial, like Hamilton, where it's Latinos, mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans, and, oh, yes. and blacks together forming a unity to kind of reinvent or revisualize what Broadway can look like. Yeah. What was the experience for you um, being a part of Hamilton and having that level of cultures clashing with that Latino culture and black culture in one single stage? Um, I had had it before because I'm a part of the group that created Hamilton. I'm part of Freestyle Up Supreme, which is a hip hop improvised group yeah. with Lynn and Crystal. So we had that kind of chemistry thing already in our improv group. It was one of those things was like everybody brought their baggage, whether it be positive or negative to the stage and we created a family. So I think one of the things I loved about being in Hamilton was we were basically just showing the audience what America looks like. It's like, yeah, this is great and Broadway is wonderful, but let me let, let us show you what real America looks like. This is what America looks like. America is not just one shade. You know, it's not just BET where it's just black and there's nobody there. And it's not just regular <laughs> the great white way where it's just the white people. It's everybody. When you walk outside your door, you see everybody. And it, now I get it. Some people stay within their own little village, their own little block, and they don't see too much. But the minute they step on that train and want to go Christmas shopping, they see everybody. And that's the thing we wanted that they wanted the show to reflect what America looks like while talking about America. And it's amazing how people are like, oh my God, I, I had no idea. It's like, yeah, step out the door and get on the train for a second. You'll see everybody. <laughs> well, all right. I have to ask you the question there because you said a lot of things I wanted to ask you about. And considering you're on a, a, you've been in biracial shows, you're on a biracial podcast now. Yes. Um, so for you, uh, you know, like anything, it's, it's what you bring to it. You know, as a performer, you know, you interpret a piece, you bring to it something. As an audience member, you interpret, you bring something. So 
Blacks and Latinos have been a little bit divided over uh, Hamilton, especially now, especially when it happened on Broadway was one thing, but the world started to shift a bit, especially considering where we are. So attitudes, attitudes towards Hamilton started to change. What do you think people are missing in their, in their larger criticisms? Not to say that, you know, the inverse of whitewashing uh, or, or getting rid of, you know, the fact that a character was a slave owner, all that aside, what do you think people are missing is part of the message of Hamilton in terms of unity? I think people are missing the fact that Hamilton is a flawed human being. I'm always amazed when people go, and I'm going to, I'm going to get shot for this. I'm going to get shot for this. I'm always amazed when people come to Hamilton and they're couples and they go, oh my gosh, what a romantic couple. What a romantic, I want those songs at my wedding. Really? Really? You want the songs of a man <laughs> who cheated on his wife with another, at, at, at your wedding? Is, is that what you got from this show? You didn't get the fact that you saw a man who did great things in this country, but was flawed the entire time. Every, every character is flawed. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, every character is flawed the entire time. And what you came away with was this mystical, romantical moment of the show. You got swept up in the music. You got swept up in the Broadway. You got swept up in the ticket price. So you had to like it. And all of a sudden, you were like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And then all of a sudden, we get to COVID, and everybody gets, has time to sit down and actually read what the read what the history is. And they're like, oh, my God, we should cancel people. And I'm like, look, man, if you cancel everybody that made a mistake in history, there's no point in reading a book. If you, because if, what people don't understand is this is 2020. In 2045, someone's going to read about the Black and Brown podcast and James Merle Iglehart on it. And we are going to say something here that's going to be completely offensive to somebody 40 years from now. Right. They're going to go, oh, right. my God, you know, in the, in, the, in the Library of Commerce, they had this podcast. We should cancel the podcast because they mentioned this. Like, get a grip. Get a grip. <laughs> this, is, this is history. Did he own slaves? Yes. Is he a bad person? Yes and no. Is everybody a bad person? Yes and no. But it's a Broadway show. But if you cancel every time a story and someone does something in the past and defends it, we have no stories at all. So You're relax, right. buy a ticket, see the show, see it for what it is, see it for a great Broadway show that it is, and also see the man for the flawed person, not character, person he is. And then when you step out, when you have your conversations, before you start talking crap, think about the dumb stuff you've done and hopefully you didn't tweet it. Very well said, James. You know, and, Wait, and I, I got to make a comment there. You said something I thought was great. You were saying that, you know, achieve great things yet had flaws. Yes. That essentially is America. That is America. We, I, I'm one of those guys that feels our country is amazing and terrible at the same time. We have, one, we have the greatest country in the world and the worst country in the world because we are the biggest hypocrites. We can say what we want, but then don't want nobody to say nothing. The funny thing is, what we're going through right now is something that Ice-T said years ago. He said, you have the freedom to say what you want, just watch what you say. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So that's the, that's the thing. I mean, yes, our history is mad flawed. I mean, mad flawed. But without that history, we wouldn't be here. So now, mm -hmm. we as people, with a better understanding with better technology and 
able to look at the situation in a self-aware way, we have to now look at everybody and go, okay, now what are we going to do? Now that we know it's messed up, now that we see it, now that it's out there for everybody to see, now that everybody can't say, oh, I didn't see it. Now what you going to do? Because right now is how whatever we do going forward, that's what's going to be the great positive or negative history. So I'm hoping we all get our act together and we have conversations like this and people just listen, you know, instead of wanting to argue all the damn time, be mad, you know, be offended by everything. No, listen to somebody. You never know. You might learn something. James, what did you think when the New York Times posted the article, We See You, White American Theater, which is essentially about telling Black and Latino stories that the Great White Way, for the most part in its history, has not really wanted to do because the majority of the stories told on Broadway are essentially white. And we just have to be witnesses to it. We cannot see ourselves really represented, which is one of the reasons that Hamilton was such a massive disruptor um, in theater and on Broadway. Um, When you saw that, were you freaked out? You're like, oh my God, we're about to go into a black hole in here. No, I I wasn't freaked out at all. I just wanted to, I, I agreed, but also disagreed. I agreed with the things that were said, but I also want to make sure that we realize that when we say things, we can't take them back and that there are, we're going to have to, there's not going to be a world where we're not going to have to work with white folks. There's not that world. So, we as black and latino people we have to be strong with our message we have to have a focus because we get we we as we as brown folks we get we we can lose focus we go this is our focus and then somebody goes yeah but what about this and then we start splintering off no no what's our main focus we want to tell broadway look you have us on stage our stories will be told not you have to tell them because you can't tell them because you can't tell our story because you don't know it Because when stories are written, you have West Side Story, which is nothing wrong with West Side Story. Nothing's wrong with West Side Story. But most people focus on Hamilton, but people don't focus on Lens in the Heights. And that is a realistic story about being Latino living in the Heights. Not everything was a gang. Sometimes you just went outside and, you know, busted the drain pipe and sprayed water on yourselves. Most of the time you went outside and got ice cream with your friends. Most of the time you tried to date a girl and she didn't like you and you had to tell your friends, dang, I'm terrible and hopefully she'll like me later on in life. Most of the time you were that black dude tried to date that Latino girl, that Latino dad said, no, not you. Then realized you weren't that bad and went, okay, yeah, you. And then you were that Latino kid who tried to come into that black family and they were like, no, not you. And then you had to show them, yes, me. And you know what I mean? It wasn't all this violence. It wasn't all this gang stuff. I think what people forget is that we're human. And if we tell human stories, then it doesn't become white, Latin, black. It becomes a human story. Because when you tell a human story and just put a person in it, no matter what color they are, everybody can understand because everybody's been through that. Everybody has a mother that says the wrong thing every time they go someplace. Everybody has a grandmama that you go, I love you, but we can't take you in public. Everybody has a dad that... (laughs) If he's barbecuing and he grabs a beer, you're like, all right, we need to really watch him. We don't know where he's going to go or where he's going to be. You know what I'm saying? Everybody has that cousin that you don't invite to professional things. I got a couple cousins I've never invited on the Broadway because I know they don't know how to act. You know what I mean? These are human stories. And I think when that email went out, it was very important because we needed to get their attention. They needed to understand, look, we see you. 
And not only do we see you, you need to look at the stars you have right now on Broadway. And when you look at them, they look like us. You got Audrey McDonald, you got myself, you got Ephraim Sykes, you got Daniel Watts, you got Adrian Warren. I mean, you you've got you've got you got Eden Espinoza, you got people who look like us. And these are the stars that the kids are looking up to. So you either need to understand that we're gonna tell our stories, or we're gonna go someplace else. And that's the one thing you don't want. Cause we've been making up Broadway for the last 20 years. So it's we're not getting rid of white folks or so the black folks say, yeah, we're going to do this. We're gonna, no, 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 no. We all got to work together to make this work. If we all work together, and I know that sounds so damn cliche, but it is. It's about them listening. It's about us listening. It's about us not worrying about just what's on stage. We need to be behind the stage. We need to be behind the, we need to be behind the desk so we can tell them, uh, by the way, yeah, that's, that's a little insensitive. You probably shouldn't say that. Dude. You probably don't want that line in the song. Because some people are going to be mad. You know what I mean? So those are the things. So I, I wasn't shocked by the email. I was impressed by the email. But I also wanted us to know, okay, now that we've said it, we got to know what we got to do when it's, now that it's out there because we're going to have to work with these folks now. And right. be, okay, be okay with the uncomfortability and get through it and, and work to, to make Broadway better. And we've we got time. Now that Broadway's closed, we have time to fix this. So the producers can say, what do you guys, what do you guys want? This is what we want. What do you want? We, we know what you want. You want, you want, you produce, you want the money. We get that. Let us tell our stories. And trust me, you let us tell our stories. The money will come. I do want to ask you, uh, you mentioned something there about, uh, and just to further what Jack is talking about, you know, our stories being told, who's going to tell them, who's going to see them. And, and essentially, this is the same thing in film, you know, do our stories matter? And should we be allowed or be given the opportunity to tell them. But economics plays a role. You know, Broadway is not something that has always been affordable for many people. So no. in many ways, no, when not. you're writing, you know, with Broadway in mind, you have to think about who that audience is. The economics, black stories to a white audience, affluence, class, your thoughts on that whole issue there? I think the interesting thing is that Broadway needs to realize that as as much money as it makes, it does it does need to bring its prices down. I mean, you know, and that will hurt the pocketbook of many many people, including the actors, because there are a lot of actors who've made tons of money. It's nothing like no, nothing like saying, "Hey, I wish the prices were down," but then you look at your check and you go, "Well, <laughs> you know." So you you know yeah. what I mean? So, but we have to be realistic and say, "Look, if we want more folks to come, right. we have to be accommodating to the folks that need to come." And also. I don't think Broadway ever had a problem. That's not true. I won't say Broadway ever had a major problem of telling our stories when we told them. The issue was how people inter it thought the audience was going to interpret them. Not how they did interpret them, but the thought pattern of, oh, they don't want to see that. And then they then all of a sudden raised the sun about, oh my God, great, great, wonderful show. Then, you know, we, they, they don't want to see that. Then the whiz comes out, oh my God, amazing show. <laughs> Every time something was put on stage that we did, they ate it up and they would look at us like, I didn't know this was up. Of course you don't know. You're not, you, you, you're not around. You're not around. You're not around the folks that write this show. So they eat, they eat it up. If we are writing our story and here's the thing, not just a story. That's the problem. If we are writing our story and the story is good and the story is human and hits a note with humans, like in the Heights, like, Aladdin, like uh, Hamilton, it will hit a nerve and folks will go, oh, cool, that's, I get it. I, 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 I understand. 
So I would say that Broadway has to rethink how they market. They have to rethink who they're marketing to. They have to rethink their structure so that other folks who want to see Broadway, because people want to see Broadway, but they're also walking by going, do I want to see a show and the ticket price is $239? Or do I want to go out with my friends and have dinner and take the same $239 and be able to spend more time with my friends? What, what do I want to do? They need to, we have to, they have to adjust. And it will. There, there'll be a moment where it will adjust. And so it'll be where, okay, we're all there. We're all going. At least I hope. I want to say that. At least I hope. So th- that, that's, what I, that's what I think about that. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I remember, um, you know, the Broadway League has an initiative called Viva Broadway uh, that's specifically targeting uh, Latinos to attend more Broadway shows. And when I, I, I had originally conceived that, uh, that initiative and I, I was pitching it to Broadway to see if they would take it. And I remember some of, the, some of the statements that were made in the meeting was like, you should be targeting Telemundo and Univision audiences so they can go more to Broadway. He's like, no, Latinos don't watch Broadway shows. Here's what I've learned. Our people will come if we're on stage. Our people will come if we're on stage. Disney put out Lion King and black folks came for miles. We did Memphis in 2009 and there were busloads, busloads of black folks who weren't from New York. They bust from other places because they heard about the show the black folks were in. Here's the thing, you put us on stage, we'll come. I was the genie. The minute the Tony Awards came on and there was a black man jumping around and that glitter and blue, black folks came from miles around going, wait, what? Who's on stage? What's happening? What's going on? I remember when In the Heights hit, I was watching it off Broadway. This wasn't even Broadway. I remember. It was me, a couple of white people, and the rest was Latin folks. They were like, this is our show. And they were were like, and the great thing is, the awesome, the, the fun part is, I think what's going to happen is, no, what it already is happening is the regular Broadway folks have to understand that we celebrate our people a little bit different. <laughs> so don't go in there thinking it's going to be Phantom of the Opera. Like we're going to be, that's not what's going to happen. If we see something we like, we're going to say something. If we see something we like, we're going to cheer. There are some of us, uh, the three of us, <laughs> who know how to be on one side, how to be on the other. So we know if we go to certain shows, we go, yeah, cool. Right. This is really good. I, I enjoy this. But we also know that if there's more of us in there, we're gonna be like, Very yeah, true. you go, and we go, we, we go. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, I think I think what's happening is the producers at first thought, well, no, black people and Latino don't want to go to Broadway. You didn't ask. Mm-hmm. And now, with the shows that have come out, Aladdin. Um, I, I mentioned Aladdin because our show was so brown from all we had. Latin, oh my Asian, God, I, I remember. Asian, yeah. I mean, everybody was on stage, but everybody came. There was a moment that um, we had to tell a couple of the marketing folks, we were like, you need to get Filipino TV down here because we have Adam Jacobs and Don Darrell Rivera. And he was like, what? I was like, listen, if you could tell Filipino TV that there are two Filipino boys who are starring in the show as Aladdin Iago, they will come. Sure enough, sure enough. Once they know we're in the show, our folks come. And here's the thing, green is green. And once the producers realize that green is green and that we have green, it's amazing Mm -hmm. how many shows with brown people (laughs) have been on stage in the last five years. 
And we're like, hey, we need Trent. to get some brown people on stage because they got <laughs> money. You know? Uh, James, you have a new HGTV holiday series. It's called The Biggest Little Christmas Showdown. Yes. Um, I had a chance to catch a couple of clips on it. And wow, I had never thought that miniature competition would be such a thing. Explain to us what the show's about and why people need to watch this. So here's the thing. I'm the new host of an HGTV show called Biggest Little Christmas Showdown, and it's about miniaturists. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know what a miniaturist is, if you've seen a dollhouse, that's beautiful. If you've seen a Barbie house, that's great. No, we're talking about real life, um, you know, home designers, but what they're designing are tiny, tiny homes. If you were to able to use some sort of comic book shrink ray, we could live in these houses. They are real. They have electricity. They have water. They, it's it's crazy. They, um, so basically, our competition show is we have three teams. These teams compete against each other. And at the finale, the last, the three best teams compete for a prize worth over $50,000. And it's about the detail. It's about the holiday spirit because we, I give them little mini challenges, all with Christmas themes, and they have to build to that. So if they're building a miniature house, I can stop the show and go, hey, now we got a challenge. Can you build this? I don't want to give anything away. And they have to stop what they're doing and start building something on from scratch right then and there. It is amazing. I'm a big comic book fan, so I know about comic cons and all that kind of stuff. I had no idea when I first heard about this, that the miniature world is just as big as comics. These, the, the, these folks wow. are, and they're amazing artists. I mean, these, most of them on, if, if they don't do this for a living, they're interior designers in real life. So they, they build their small houses. And then say you want to buy a house, like, you know, Jack, your, your place behind you is fantastic. Say you want, you want to do that. Someone brings you a small room and goes, okay, this is what I can build you. And you can see it in miniature and go, yeah, I want that. That may take things out, put it back. So this is a competition show for all the folks that do that kind of thing. It is brilliant. I, I, I'm having such a ball on it. And addicting. That's another thing. It's <laughs> the minute you see someone bake, a tiny pie. I was done. <laughs> I was like, let me get this straight. You did what? And it was little, and it was a little strawberry pie, and it was real. And I was like, and it, and it had the lines and everything. It wasn't like they just slapped something. Like they, they, the lady had magnifying glasses, and she was putting things. I was blown away. And it's a great show. It's every Friday at 9 o'clock on HGTV. Uh, we just had the first episode last week, and uh, the next couple episodes are coming out. And it's gonna. It's, I hope people are enjoying it. From what I could see in the clips, you weren't wearing glitter, you weren't blue or anything. Oh, thank the Lord. Listen, don't get me wrong. I, Aladdin was a godsend, as you can see. I mean, as you can see, I, I, I love it. It's wonderful. But uh, I was so happy to get all that glitter off. So to be myself and, and, and you know, not, 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 not be blue, I was like, you not get to look like me? Yeah, I'm in. Well, you can catch James Monroe Eigelhard on HGTV's holiday series, Biggest Little Christmas Showdown, which is on right now. Yep. James, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being Thank with you us very much. Uh, on this post-Thanksgiving oh, yeah. holiday week and uh, much appreciated. We'd love to have you back, man. You are just awesome. Definitely. So thank Definitely. you so much. Thank you. But I, thank you. La last thing, I just want to say, I, everybody that's listening, the, the great thing about people like me is that these are my opinions. And everybody has them. So if you don't agree, that's fine. You don't have to fight. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to be angry. Just know that people have opinions and people have thoughts. And then when we talk it out, that's what makes us better people. Because I can understand you and you can understand me. And as a brown person, I want people to understand both 
the light brown and the dark brown. So if you agree, great. If you don't, great. Let's have a discussion. We discuss and we move on with our lives and enjoy the journey of this life. That's it for this 27th episode of Brown and Black. We want to thank James Monroe Eigelhart for being on the show and thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Hopefully you guys can catch us on the next episode of Brown and Black. You can follow us at Brown Black Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and our new YouTube channel. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next week on another episode of Brown and Black. Thank you.